Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, beginning with the first verse. Hear the good news. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, well, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you, had carried him, if you have carried him away, let me tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O oh Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh risen from the tomb. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Some of you know that I am the proud owner of an antique Jeep. At least that's what the license plate says, antique. But my birth certificate says, certificate says the same thing. <clears throat> In car world, antique because it's over 30 years old, 38 years to be precise, a 1985 CJ7. I bought it in the midst of a midlife crisis. I did the calculations. This would be the cheapest of all the midlife crisis alternatives. My son-in-law found it for me. He had to go back to 1985 to get me to my miserly price point. It looks like a 1985 vehicle. It carries its age proudly, a little rust here, some unmatched paint there, an engine that leaves a little bit of oil wherever it goes. His name is Willis, a variation on the original name of the Jeep model going back to World War II. Willys is what they called them back then. I bought Willis when he was 31 years old, and by then he had showed all the signs of what the previous owners did to make him into what they wanted him to be. 
He was jacked up on a six-inch lift, rumbled on top of massive 35-inch Super Swamper tires. He carried a fishing pole rack on the front bumper, different model seats, had a makeshift horn attached that sounds like a wheezing child, and a stereo jerry-rigged underneath the, underneath the dash. Most of these things I am not. I am not a six-inch lift Super Swamper kind of guy. My idea of off-roading is riding my bike on the Legacy Trail. I have no need for a fishing pole rack because I don't fish. So there's always been a big part of me that wants to return Willis to his original state. Original suspension, original wheels, original color, original finish, original mirrors, original, original, original. And I've done a little bit of that. Gone are the super swamper tires and the fishing pole rack and the lift that has come down a bit. A little closer, I suppose, to the original. I love originals. I love to go to car shows and see what people have done to restore their cars to their original state. I have a few friends who are pretty good at it. Some of you are good at it. Since I don't know the difference between a wrench and a hammer, I'm not good at it. I don't possess much art, but a lot of what I do possess are originals, most painted by people I know, parishioners who, found, who were poured their talent onto the canvas and granted me their originals. My prized possession is an original painted by a former parishioner when he was in prison for having committed a felony. Its value is in its story. And it all speaks to an important question that collectors and aficionados ask when they are viewing a piece of art. Is it an original? It's the original that matters. Copies are not the same, variations are not the same, forgeries are not the same. But if it's the original, then we will do whatever we can to keep it in its original state, return it to its original state. We've all read stories of famous art being vandalized or neglected, and it's never a question of what needs to be done, right? We must restore it to as close to its original state as possible. The Bible begins by telling us the story of our origins, right there on page one in the Bible, it tells us that when we were created, we were knit together in our mother's womb. We were A, created in the image of God, and B, God pronounced us good. God created us in God's image with the goodness of the master. Each of us is an original of great value and our value rests in the one who created us. Our value rests in our originality, our origins in the creator as the unique expression of the creator's goodness. And then life happens. And life has its way of pushing back on our uniqueness, calling into question the value of our origins. Life has its way of making us think that we're not good enough in our original state. Something must be done to make us better, more valuable. We must perform to be better. We must conform to be better. We must add accessories to be better. We must change the color to be better. In other words, we must get further and further away from the original to be better. God paints this beautiful image in us then this family member says, oh, no, no, you have to be this. And this friend says, oh, no, no, you, you can't be that. 
And, and this person says, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to be this. And, and that person says, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to be that. And it doesn't take long before we lose our originality, our uniqueness. We lose the sense of who we are. Which may be what Plato was onto when he posited 400 years before the birth of Jesus that we who stumble through this world exist as mere shadows of our true selves. That each of us begins as an original, that there is a real you from which you have come and unto which you will return. And so we who open up our Gospels and read of this Rabbi Jesus who walks from town to town in Palestine and tells folks that there is a kingdom in their midst that beckons them to their original. There is a creator who is also a restorer. There is a potter who fixes broken pots. There is a regenerator of souls. And we know this has to be the case because we see it all the time in our bodies and spirits, this regenerating God who is all the time restoring us as much as possible to our original state. We learned it when we were young. We cut our finger and mom and dad kissed it and then put a Band-Aid on it and promised that it would get better. And it did. God fashions us to be restored and return to the original. You do something foolish, you hurt someone, and by hurting someone, you hurt yourself. And the rabbi says, oh, we can heal that hurt because there's something called forgiveness that restores us back to our original state. Jesus tells Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Is that not another way of saying that the creator wants you back to your original state of belovedness. When he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well who has been shunned and abused and offers her living water, is it not to restore her into the original child of God she is? When he encounters the blind man and heals him of his blindness, is it not just returning him to his original state? When he raises his friend Lazarus from the tomb, is he not bringing him to a new birth? The Savior is trying to get us back to our core identity. Nikki Giovanni in her book on African-American spirituals reminds us of that plain and simple spiritual, the refrain of which goes, if anybody asks you who I am, who I am, who I am, if anybody asks you who I am, tell them I am a child of God. So when John tells us the Easter story, he focuses on one person, a woman named Mary, Mary Magdalene, one of the few women mentioned in all the Gospels, the one whom Luke tells us was delivered of seven demons, this one whom Jesus had been restoring, restoring to her original state of belovedness. But now the powers of be have done something to her Messiah. They've done something to her teacher. They've done something to her regenerator. They've condemned him. They've stripped him of his dignity. They've sought to rid him of his originality. They have strapped him to a tree and killed him. Life has done to Jesus what life seeks to do with all of us, to rid us of ourselves. Vandalize the original. They've killed the restorer, the healer, the forgiver, and maybe with them have killed the dream, Mary's dream, Peter's dream, James, John's dream, Matthew's dream, that, that there really is a balm in Gilead. That there is one who can restore us to our original. 
And now the tomb is empty, and now there's confusion, and now there's a strange man walking around in the garden. Why does Mary not recognize him? Was it her tears? Was it her despair? Was it her inability to imagine a dead man walking? Or was it that Jesus had come into his own fullness, that he had become the glorified and risen Savior, the complete Christ? And he calls her name. He calls her name, the name she got when she was born the first time, the closest thing she's got to her original, Mary, he said, Mary. And with that name comes a rebirth. With that name returns the dream. With that name comes the good news that the restorer is still restoring, the healer is still healing, the forgiver is still forgiving. The past, present, and future is all wrapped up in this resurrected rabbi who is here to say that this is what God has been doing since the beginning of time, restoring his creation to its original state. Every hurt healed, every sin forgiven, every essence claimed, every image rediscovered. This is what God has been up to since the beginning of time. And by his grace, he walks from the tomb to seal the deal. That there is no question as to where we're going. We're going all the way back to the beginning. The beginning of our belovedness. If anybody asks you who I am, who I am, who I am. If anybody asks you who I am, tell them. I am a child of God. Fred Craddock, one of the great American preachers, told the story of when he and his wife were out to dinner at a restaurant outside of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and he tells the story this way. He said, early in the evening, an elderly man approached our table and said, good evening. I said, good evening. He said, are you on vacation? I said, yes. But under my breath, I was saying, it's really none of your business. <laughs> Where are you from, he asked. Oh, we're from Oklahoma. Oh, what do you do in Oklahoma? Under my breath. Now almost audible, I was saying, leave us alone, we're on vacation, and we don't know who you are. I said instead, I'm a Christian minister. He said, what church? I said, the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. He paused a moment and said, you know, I owe a great deal to a minister of the Christian church, and he pulled over a chair and sat down. <laughs> Have a seat, I said. <laughs> He said, I grew up in these mountains. My mother was not married. The whole community knew it. I was what was called an illegitimate child. In those days, that was a shame, and I was ashamed. The reproach that fell on her, of course, fell on me. When I went into town with her, I could see people staring at me, making guesses as to who my father was. At school, the children said ugly things to me, and so I stayed to myself during recess, ate my lunch alone. In my early teens, I began to attend a little church back in the mountains called Laurel Springs Christian Church. I, it had a minister who was both attractive and frightening. He had a chiseled face, a heavy beard, and a deep voice. I went to hear him preach. I don't know exactly why, but that preacher did something for me. And however, I was afraid that I was not welcome since, as they put it, I was a bastard. So I just got there in time for the sermon, and when it was over, I would move out because I was afraid someone would say, what's a boy like you doing in a church like this? 
one Sunday, some people queued up in the aisle before I could get out, and I was stopped. And before I could make my way through the group, I felt a hand on my shoulder, a heavy hand. It was that minister. I, I cut my eyes around and caught a glimpse of his beard and chin, and I knew who it was, and I trembled. I trembled in fear. He turned his face around so he could see mine, and he seemed to be staring for a while. I knew what he was doing. He was going to make a guess as to who my father was. A moment later, he said, boy... You're a child of, and he paused. I knew it was coming. I knew I'd have my feelings hurt. I knew I wouldn't be going back to that church again. He said, boy, you're a child of God. I see a striking resemblance, boy. With that, he swatted me on the bottom and said, now you go claim your inheritance. I left that building a different person. In fact, that was really the beginning of my life. I was so moved by the story, Credit continues, I had to ask him, what's your name? He said, Ben Hooper. I recall, though vaguely, my own father talking when I was just a child about how the people of Tennessee had twice elected as governor a bastard named Ben Hooper. Mary, 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 calls the resurrected rabbi, Ben, Ben Hooper, calls the resurrected rabbi, Tony, Lori, Julie, Stan, Peter, James, John, insert your own name. Because today is Easter, and today the resurrected rabbi is calling all of our names, and he sees in all of us a striking resemblance to the Father of Heaven, and he just can't wait to get us back to where it all began, to that spitten image, to that original that he's created, to that unique and wonderful and beautiful child of God he's known since the beginning of time. If anybody asks you who I am, who I am, who I am, if anybody asks you who I am, tell them. I am a child of God.